This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome in, everybody, to the Flagship Podcast. I am Chip Brown of Horns247.com. Excited to be joined for this week's interview by Dave Softy Mahler of KJR in Seattle. 20 years he's been uh, doing the, the pregame, the halftime, the postgame for Washington Husky football. So that means, Softy, that we get to ask you about what Steve Sarkeesian was like as a yeah. young head coach. Did you get to talk to his assistant coaches back then? Oh, yeah. No, we uh, – I remember uh, Nick Holt, who was his defensive coordinator, uh, Mike Cox, who was his linebackers coach, uh, Jimmy Doherty was a wide receivers coach. He's now at Arizona. Uh, Mike, I think, is at Kansas State. I, I think Nick, if I'm not mistaken, might be coaching football in Italy right now. I'm not sure where he's at. Hello. That was a, that was a hell of a staff, and you got to remember that Chip Sark was hired. He was in his mid thirties when he got the job at UW. Right. He was uh, Pete Carroll's offensive coordinator at USC, and uh, Tyrone Willingham goes zero and twelve in two thousand eight, and they fire him obviously, and they hire Steve Sarkeesian. And I remember being at the uh, at a restaurant near UW when the word came out that Sark had been hired, and I think a lot of people were like. Really? This is what Washington's doing? Well, nobody really wanted the job then, right? I mean, you, you were 0-12. You were absolutely in the gutter of Pac-10 football and college football back then. So, you know, it, it's it's funny you ask that because I just put a poll out on Twitter asking Husky fans if they had a favorable or unfavorable opinion of, Steve, uh, of uh, Sark's time at Washington. And so far, it's like 80% favorable, right? Because he took an 0-12 football team to 5-7, and and then to seven and six, won the Holiday Bowl against Nebraska in 2011. And then when he left, they were a nine-win football team after winning a bowl game against BYU before he took off to go to USC. So I always felt like Sark was going to take UW to one level, and then it was somebody else's job to take it to another level. And that guy ended up being Chris Peterson, obviously. So yeah, I've got I got stories, you know, some of them. Favorable, some not favorable. I mean, all of his times are documented with his battles with alcoholism, Chip, as you know. Um, but we can get into all that if you want. But, you know, I, I, I kind of saw both sides of Sark from a professional and personal perspective. But he was always good to me, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for the guy. 
in Austin, except for this game, not rooting for him this game. That's right. Not, not for this game. Um, yeah. He, I mean, he has said by his own admission, he was maybe too much too soon. Um, kind of got literally drunk on his um, success, maybe ego gone wild a little bit. What, without getting into details, what, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, what did you see uh, of Sarkeesian? Because obviously USC hired him right. and uh, he coached there for a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, I saw a guy who, uh, I mean, all this has been documented, right, Chip? He's talked about it, that right. had troubles with alcoholism, you know? I mean, and he went through it all, and I think he paid he paid the price, right? He lost his career, he lost his wife, he lost his reputation, he lost his job, and had to totally restart from the beginning. Obviously, he had a lot of contacts around college football, was able to get back in rather easily, but... He paid a huge price for all of that, and uh, I, I look at him now. He's he's clean. Uh, he's got a new wife. He's married, right? You know, got married to Malik Smith's sister, who played center field here for the Mariners for a while. So we know Malik's obviously pretty well. But I remember after games, we would do our post game show from the practice field, which is literally if you're sitting in Husky Stadium, Lake Washington's off to the right, and there's a practice field there. And we would do our post-game show there. And the coaches would have like a tent that would be set up where they could come out after games with their wives and kids and have a couple beers and have a couple cocktails after a game. And sometimes it got a little crazy, right, with, with those coaches and with Sark out there. So, you know, just stories that now kind of make a lot of sense after the demon he was fighting and the battle of alcoholism that he was going through. But I think it's great that he's been totally able to rebuild this thing. I, I hope Texas fans are patient with him. You know, I mean, inheriting the mess that was the previous regime obviously takes some time to kind of clean up a little bit. I think you're seeing what he can do with the Arch Manning signing, obviously, and how much damage the guy can do on the West Coast with quarterbacks and the transfer portal. You know, I mean, when the Manning family basically comes out and says that Steve Sarkeesian is the guy that they want Arch to learn how to play quarterback from – that's a pretty freaking awesome statement for me if I'm a Texas fan. So I know Texas fans aren't patient, just like Washington fans and Bama fans and Ohio State fans, but I think he's on the right track, and I'm just glad to see that he's been able to turn his life around, man. It's pretty cool to see. Well, while we're on the subject of Texas Longhorns who spent time at Washington, yeah, uh, Pete Kwiatkowski. Yeah. I mean, that, that story has been the turnaround story of the Texas uh, 2022 season going from giving up 31.1 points per game to, you know, right around 20 right. Uh, and going from giving up 5.2 yards per carry on the ground last year, second worst in school history to, uh, you know, right at 3.5 yards per carry this season. Uh, Pete Kwiatkowski, you know him well. Uh, we don't get to talk to him because Sark's now more Saban than he is Pete Carroll. God, He's got the assistance on lockdown. So we get to talk to the coordinators like right before the season starts and that's it. Yeah. But, um, you know, as you were watching it from afar last year, you know, what was going through your mind? Cause Pete Kwiatkowski turned out some really top notch defenses there at Washington. Yeah. Well, first of all, the fact that Steve doesn't allow you guys to talk to assistants, that's crazy. I mean, I just think that coaches worry about stupid stuff, Chip. I mean, honestly, like, you know, paranoid about practices and shutting things down there and talking to assistant coaches. I mean, uh, I don't know how you guys do it, but freshmen, pure freshmen aren't allowed to talk to the media in Seattle, yeah. you know, like 
I mean, it's some, you know, North Korean secret that they're going to be giving away when they, it's just stupid, right? I mean, any, any way you can promote your program and get your guys out there talking to people, I think the more the merrier, but again, that's just me. But um, how, how, I mean, let me ask you this. How different does this defense look personnel wise today compared to the one that ended last year? Transfer portal, recruiting the whole thing. Well, they had a kid emerge this year, a junior, the middle linebacker, Jalen Ford, right. who only started two games last year, but was still the team's third leading tackler in 2021. So, you know, maybe he was ready uh, last year, but he totally emerged. He should have been the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. They gave it to Felix Anyaduke Uzama from K-State, who, yeah. I don't, you know, he's a pass rusher. He didn't have a sack like the second half of the season, but um, then they brought in a six foot three corner from Ohio State named Ryan Watts, who is played the boundary corner for them, completely shut down his side of the field and really good tackler. Uh, when he went out of the Iowa State game, the defense, the secondary kind of lost its bearings for a right. little while. Right. But, um, you know, that's that's and then they had some attrition that was probably addition by sure. subtraction sure. with some old you know, mentalities from the Herman era. So, um, you know, up front, the personnel is pretty much the same and they just seem to get it this year. Right. Uh, Moro Ojimo, uh, Keandre Coburn, a couple of fifth year seniors. So, um, you know, and uh, that staff was maybe not what Sark originally had planned. Um, so I don't know if he put it together the same way he did, but it was a lot better this year. Right. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because you asked kind of what my thoughts were on watching Coach K in that defense. And my first thought is, well, the guy just got there. He needs better players. End of story, right? I mean, that's kind of what's going on with Keelan DeBoer in that you had an offense that averaged 20 points a game last year. Now they're averaging 40 points a game. And they got better players, meaning Michael Penix, number one, the transfer quarterback from Indiana, Wayne Talapapa, the transfer running back from Virginia. Uh, the offensive line is the same as it was a year ago, but they fired the offensive coordinator, obviously, because he was just a complete zero and never should have had that job in the first place. But, you know, one great quarterback is equal to what? Four or five great players on offense. And the job that Michael Penix has done has been unbelievable. So I think you're seeing it with Coach K. I mean, I remember – you know, the Alabama game guy, uh, you know, guys in 2016 when they played Bo Scarborough and Jalen Hurts and those guys, they gave up 24 points against Alabama on defense with Pete Krakowski as the defensive coordinator. But seven of them came on a pick six right before the end of the half. And three more of them came when Alabama got the ball well inside the Husky 50 after a fumble by John Ross. So really the defense that day only gave up 14 points against Alabama in a semifinal Peach Bowl game. So don't get me wrong. Pete Kwiatkowski can coach defense, okay? He absolutely can coach defense. The only reason why he wasn't the defensive coordinator at the end of his time in Seattle is because he gave the job to Jimmy Lake because they were fearful they would lose him if they didn't bump up his pay and change his title. So that was a hell of a move by Pete, uh, you know, to keep Jimmy in Seattle. He became the head coach, and that obviously, as you know, Chip didn't work out. But um, – I think Texas fans, and it sounds like you too, are seeing what Pete Kukowski is capable of if you give some guys some time in the system. Yeah, for sure. And and Jeff Choate. Yeah. Um, what are your memories of Jeff Choate uh, yeah. in this time there? Jeff Choate, former defensive line coach at UW, and 
A um, couple things that stand out. Number one, he coached via Avita Vea at UW, who's a freaking monster with the Buccaneers right now. I mean, he's almost as unblockable as any defensive tackle in college football. Greg Gaines was with us, and he's now with the Rams defensive line playing alongside Aaron Donald. But Jeff Choate was the guy that went to Will Disley, uh, who was playing defensive line for him, and said, you know what, I think you should be playing tight end. And he moved to tight end, and now he's with the Seahawks and just signed a brand-new contract. He's going to make a lot of money playing tight end in the NFL. So Jeff Choate was able to identify that you had a guy kind of out of position and, you know, the, the schemes they would use, um, the unbelievable discipline that players would play with. You know, more times than not, guys want to get theirs. They want to eat. They want to fill up the box score. And the way he would convince guys, no, hold your block here so this guy behind you can make a tackle, stay in your zone. I mean, even guys like Buda Baker would be doing things like that. So they were a very selfless, disciplined defense when they were in Seattle. And it absolutely paid gigantic dividends for them, man. I mean, it was unbelievable. They had the one really tough game against USC when Sam Darnold and those guys came to town in Seattle. But outside of that, they were they were incredible, man, with their time at UW. So, yeah, Jeff Choate, Pete Kwiatkowski, uh, all those guys, great memories of them. And, you know, again, I just think with Sark, um, he's a guy that really kind of put UW football back on the map and did it immediately. You know, beat a top 10 USC team at home in his first year in Seattle, almost beat LSU in the opener in his very first game. There's not many games where I really remember being okay with a loss, right? We're not in this thing for moral victories now, Chip. But that first game against LSU in 2009, you could see immediately that things were going to be different with Steve Sarkeesian, and they were. Yeah, I mean, I think Sarkeesian uh, has done a nice job of managing uh, through that really tumultuous first year, the five and seven year at Texas, the six game losing streak, longest losing streak since 1956. Right. To get the momentum that he got uh, in the offseason with the recruiting class, bringing in Gary Patterson as a special assistant, um, you know, and then the commitment from Arch Manning. And it looks like the 2023 class is going to be uh, pretty stout as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Softy, we're going to take a quick break here. Yeah on the flagship podcast, uh, but don't go anywhere because we're going to come back and we're going to get into this year's Huskies. Yeah, uh, Softy mentioned it. Uh, Michael Penix Jr. He had a Heisman caliber type season. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Softy, um, you know, Michael Penix, I mean, Kalen DeBoer, let's start there. He was the offensive coordinator at Indiana in yep. 2019 uh, before he goes to Fresno. 
Um, and so when he gets the job at Washington, what was the reaction of Husky Nation to the yeah. announcement of Kalen DeBoer as head coach? Well, I think if I remember correctly, first of all, it was only a year ago. It wasn't that long ago. It was last right. December, right? Or last, right. You know, last November. But I remember some folks, uh, maybe more so than not, were disappointed that it wasn't maybe a bigger name because you remember some of the names that were getting kicked around. Dave Aranda was getting kicked around. Matt Campbell from Iowa State uh, was getting kicked around. There were some names like that, you know, maybe more kind of proven guys at Power Five conferences. But then what happened is Chris Peterson kind of in some ways stepped in and vouched for Kalen DeBoer. And Jen Cohen has great respect for Chris Peterson and what he's done in college football. And his word carried a lot of weight. So I remember when they hired him, there was some disappointment for sure. Um, but there were also some fans that thought, hey, look, this guy's won everywhere he's gone. Everywhere from NAIA in South Dakota to Indiana to Fresno State, he, he just doesn't lose, right? He's just always around a winning culture and a winning program, kind of like Chris Peterson, right? He may not have been winning at a Power 5 school at Boise State, but everywhere he went, he won. I mean, Chris Peterson has not been a part of a team with a losing record since like the early 90s when he was an assistant coach at Pittsburgh, for God's sake. So I think, Chip, that carries weight a little bit when you've got guys like that that know how to build – and cultivate winning systems. And Kalen DeBoer is one of those guys where everywhere he goes, he wins. And he comes in on him, you know, immediately assesses the quarterback situation, realizes he needs a better quarterback than what he had on the roster and Dylan Morris and Sam Heward. And Michael Penix, who was with him at Indiana and had some of his best days as a football player with DeBoer at Indiana, transfers over and the whole thing just kind of took off from there. But I don't think anybody ever could have expected 10 and two and doubling your offensive point total from 20 to 40. I mean, that is just insane. Nobody could have ever expected what these guys are doing in year one. Yeah. What was the reaction when Michael Penix uh, announced yeah. he was headed to Utah? Yeah. He's never been healthy was the reaction, right? He's, he's always hurt. He's never finished a season. I mean, if you look at his numbers in Indiana, his numbers were okay, but he was, he was always hurt. Right. So it's just, okay, we're going to, bringing a guy who has not been able to finish a full season. And I think a lot of us were convinced at some point this guy was going to get banged up and they would need to play another guy, whether Dylan Morris or Sam Heward, the five-star kid locally here from, from Seattle. So the fact that he was able to finish a full season, play 12 games, knock on wood, 13 now in the bowl game, uh, has been a major reason why Mike Penix has put up the numbers that he's putting up. I mean, his accuracy is unbelievable. I did not realize how strong his arm was. I think, Chip, a lot of people look at arm strength and they think about go routes and post routes and fly patterns, things like that. But go look at the uh, uh, touchdown to Taj Davis that basically won the game against Oregon, the whole shot to the left side where he just threads a needle, boom, with a laser beam and gets that ball in there. That, that, that ball goes from one side of the field to the other in a hurry. And there's not many guys in college football that have the arm strength and the accuracy that Mike Penix has. So I, I had no idea how strong his arm was until he showed up here. But the reaction was, all right, we're going to play two quarterbacks because this guy's going to get hurt. And he never did. Yeah, I mean, he is um, an athletic guy, but he's not a runner. I mean, he'll no. extend plays with by his choice. By choice, by the way. I think, I think a lot of that's by choice. I think a lot of that is by design by the Husky offense for exactly the reason why we talked about that they don't want to get hurt, right? And he, he can run. He's, he definitely has that gene in him. 
He just doesn't use it. And part of the reason why he doesn't use it, like I said, is because they want to keep the guy healthy, given his history. And then number two, he never gets touched. He never gets touched, Chip. I mean, the guy, I, I'm, I'm telling you, there's there's games this year where he could have taken his jersey off, put his hoodie back on, and just gone home and not even taken a shower because the guy barely gets touched. I think he was sacked, what, six or seven times the entire year. This offensive line did a phenomenal job. And it's not just him standing in the pocket with, you know, hours to throw, evading pressure, stepping up in the pocket, taking a step left or a step right. His, his footwork is really, really good. And when you combine that with an offensive line that did a phenomenal job protecting him, there really has not been a reason to run the guy. And then on top of that, oh, by the way, when he's sitting in the pocket, Ryan Grubb is calling plays that are resulting in wide receivers wide open all over the field of play. So I'm really curious to see what Texas's defense does against this guy. Yeah, and two 1,000-yard receivers. Right. Um, you know, talk about this passing game. Uh, and just talk about the identity of the offense in general. Yeah, well, it's it's electric the passing game. I mean, they they really move the ball, man, downfield, and uh, they're 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 big plays. They're you know uh, uh, seam routes to wide receivers. Uh, they'll run uh, double reverse passes. Uh, they'll pull out flea flickers. Uh, again, the biggest identity uh, marker for this offense that I can tell you is that you're usually going to have guys wide open uh, and multiple guys wide open. They'll go four and five wide a lot uh, with this with this offense, and Michael Penix is going to drop back, and it's like a, it's like he's sitting at a freaking buffet, uh, right? He's just got all these options. he got some macaroni cheese over here. He's got some ribs over here. got some chicken over there, some steaks over there. It's up to him, right, whatever he wants to pick and choose. And he's, he's tall enough where he can see over the offensive line. He can see over linebackers' heads. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He doesn't fumble the ball. He doesn't throw interceptions, and they score a buttload of points, right? I mean, they're putting up 40 a game. They hung 51 on Washington State in the Apple Cup, and that was statistically the number one scoring defense in the conference before that game, and they destroyed them, barbecued Washington State. And you know what? In that game, Michael Penix actually did throw a pick at the end zone. They could have scored 60 on Wazoo, and he's gotten to – let me backtrack, because if he does make mistakes, that's where they've come. They've come in the red zone. He had a mistake against Oregon that took a touchdown off the board, and he had a mistake against Washington State that took a touchdown off the board. The really cool thing about both those drives, by the way, is they were followed up by Washington getting the ball and scoring on the very next drive. Some of these drives are 95, 99 yards against Oregon, against Oregon State. They're starting way back from inside their five, and they're methodically just slicing and dicing defenses and pushing the ball downfield. So there really isn't anything they can't do in the passing game. They don't have a really great tight end. They got a couple of guys. Devin Culp is probably the one guy that you'll notice the most in this game. He wears number 83. Their running game is kind of by committee. It's okay. There's not a real dominant running back. There's no Blake Corum, for example, uh, or Josh Charbonnet on this football team right now. But from a passing game perspective, getting those wide receivers involved, there really is nothing they can't do. Well, Sark might need to visit with Ryan Grubb in the offseason. Yeah. yeah. Sark's offense ran into some potholes over the second half of the season. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at Quinn Ewers, by the way, and I thought he would be better for you guys. What's going on with him? Yeah, I think he 
you know, people forget how little he played in high school. Like he played as a junior, but even then he missed six games having double hernia surgery okay. in the middle of that season, came back, led his team to the state championship game when they were not expected to get there. They were expected to be the team to beat his senior year, but of course he reclassified and left and went to Ohio state. I think, I think the three high safety look really bothered him. Iowa state half the big 12 runs it. Um, he had a, he slammed his finger in a door um, the week before the Oklahoma state game, his worst game. He was 19 of 49 in that game probably should have come out and Hudson card probably should have come in for a series at least. And uh, Texas let a 14 point lead get away. So um, I think Ewers struggled with his confidence after that. I think he's yeah. not used to being part yeah. of the problem. He's used to being part of the solution. And so you mentioned, you know, six or seven sacks of Michael Penix this year. Uh, Ewers was sacked eight times in the last five games. Yeah. So, yeah. It, uh, and that would be a concern for me because I'll tell you what, Chip, the defensive front of Washington has kind of come alive when it comes to getting after the passer. Um, there was a point in time this year where they weren't really producing very much. And then Jeremiah Martin and Braylon Trice um, and Zion Tupola Fatui, ZTF, we call him ZTF, number 58. All those guys really came alive. They had five sacks in the second half of the game against Washington State, and they could have had 10, honestly. I mean, they they just couldn't wrap up Cam Ward. I mean, Cam Ward, I don't know if you've seen him play or not, but he's a real shifty, slippery quarterback for Wazoo, and he was getting out of a lot of sacks. And William Inge, who's their co-defensive coordinator, said, yeah, we led the nation in sacks that day, and we led the nation in missed sacks. I mean, they could have had 10 sacks that day against him. So Quentin Ewers doesn't strike me as a real slippery mobile guy. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Yeah, kind of more of a pocket passer. So that would concern me for this game. You might have to leave people home on that offensive line to protect uh, Quinn Ewers because Jeremiah Martin and Braylon Trice and Alex Cook, safety number five, have been getting after the quarterback. And if you want to see what Alex Cook can do, go watch the third down play before the late field goal against Oregon when they tried to run Bo Nix, the former Auburn quarterback, right up the gut, and Alex Cook was there to knock him silly and send him back to the sideline. So that would be absolutely for me if I'm Steve. It's funny, Chip, that Sark used to do our show every Friday when he was with us in Seattle. And I would ask him the same question in every interview. When your head hits the pillow tonight at the team hotel, what's, what's going to be your concern? What's going to keep you up at night? And I would think for Sark, protecting Quinn Ewers in this game against that uh, Husky front that's been getting after the quarterback would be something that's on his brain for sure. Yeah, I mean it's uh, that's a that's a very concerning matchup for for Texas uh, based on the way Ewers finished the season. They, this, right. These bowl practices need to be a, a rejuvenation of of Quinn Ewers. So we'll see how Sark does. Yeah with that but you you mentioned the 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 husky defense um are they a big blitz team are they a three eight cloud team what what's the identity yeah they play a lot of nickel obviously uh which almost everybody does now in college football they they call it the husky position uh dom hampton number seven 
uh, is the guy that you'll see in that nickel spot the most. So very, very rarely do they have three linebackers on the field. And the issue with the linebackers is they really haven't been able to find two of them that they like. I mean, Carson Bruner, Alfonso uh, Tupatola has been out there. Chris Mole, number nine, has been out there. Daniel Haimuli, number 15. Uh, Cam Bright is a transfer from Pittsburgh, number two. I don't think he played really that well this year, to be honest with you. But they've played like five, six, seven linebackers that have never really been able to find two guys that they like. So that is definitely a weakness. There's no question. If you can get past that first layer of the defense, that, that second layer has been kind of a concern for Washington's defense, but they, they do play, they do play a lot of deep zone. There's no question about that. And they are susceptible to giving up those underneath routes. So if you guys have a tight end, for example, who can run down the seam, if you have a running back uh, who can make plays uh, out of the backfield on the flat, uh, wrapping up has been an issue with that second and first layer of the defense for these guys. So that, that really is how to beat these guys, to be totally honest with you. They don't give up a lot over the top, but they give up a lot over the middle, and they give up a lot in front of them. And if you've got a running back and a tight end, they can take advantage of that. That, that really has been the way to beat this UW football team, to be honest with you. Yeah, and we're still waiting to, to find out who's, who's opting in and who's opting right. out. And that's the cool thing for UW. Nobody's opted out yet, obviously. We're waiting. I, I will tell you this, that we're waiting on Roma Dunze. And Jalen McMillan, number one, number 11. You mentioned the two wide receivers there that have over 1,000 yards. Roma Dunze was on with me two days ago and said his plan for now is to play in the bowl game. But we'll see. I mean, that's that's a major blow for UW if number one doesn't go. That's kind of like Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson, who right. I think most Texas fans are expecting them to, to move on, uh, not play in the bowl game. But who knows? Those kids are are different, uh, high character kids. We'll we'll see. They also have uh, NFL agents already who are probably right. going to be advising them not to right. play. But what about special teams, Softy? Yeah. Well, uh, Peyton Henry's been pretty damn good. The kicker for UW. Uh, he's missed a couple, but he's been performing in the clutch. The cool thing about Peyton Henry. The good story about him is four years ago he missed a game winning thirty seven yard field goal at Oregon. Um, and then this year makes a 43-yard game-winning field goal at Oregon. So he really was able to kind of, you know, right the wrong and, and you know, kind of pull a 180 in that regard. So everybody's all happy for him. His, his range is okay. I mean, I wouldn't trust him longer than 50. You know, I think, uh, you know, indoors it changes everything at the Alamo Dome, obviously. So 50 yards at the Alamo Dome is probably his range, to be honest with you. Uh, Jack McAllister, uh, the punter. Uh, kind of a rugby-style guy has been okay. But the problem with the punting rules is that, obviously, there's only so much you can do now getting downfield. And fair catches, you know, things like that, obviously, on kickoffs change everything. So their return game has not been great. They don't really have a dynamic return guy, either at punt return or Giles Jackson uh, on kickoffs. He wears number zero, by the way. That's been a big difference since you probably saw UW back on the national stage when they had – Dante Pettis returning punts and John Ross returning kicks. And that's not the diff that's not the deal now anymore. There's no real dynamic return guy that you have to worry about. If there's anything that's been a problem for them, it's defending kickoffs. Uh, they've, they've given up some decent sized kickoff returns so far on, on, on special teams. So if you guys have a dynamic returner, um, I would say let them catch the ball and take off and run because there's been a couple of occasions where UW's gotten burned on that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a breath of fresh air season for Washington fans. Yeah. Uh, Kalen DeBoer, uh, Pac-12 Coach of the Year. Yeah, co-coach I mean, of the year with Jonathan Smith. Yeah, because Jonathan Smith voted for Kalen DeBoer. That's why they were co-coach of the year. Okay. So they shared the award. Uh, nobody would have ever saw 10-2 and two coming. It's been an unbelievable season for them. But you know what, Chip? They never should have gone 4-8. I mean, Washington should never be a 4-8 football team, just like Texas should never be 5-7, and seven, right, or whatever. That's ridiculous for, for those two programs to have access to that kind of talent to be that bad. And, you know, obviously they fired Jimmy Lake, you know, about three-quarters of the way through the season last year, gave the job to Bob Gregory, who was an interim head coach and had no desire to be there. I mean, none. I remember doing a coach's show with him last year because he's the interim guy. So he's the guy that's, you know, has to coach, has to host the show. And we go into the studio and he literally looks at me and says, do I have to do this? It's like, yeah, dude, you have to do it. And trust me, I don't want to do it either. So he had no desire to be there. He was counting down until the season was over. Apple Cup, they gave uh, the uh, the start to Sam Heward, the five-star kid we talked about. That's Damon Heward's son and Brock Heward's nephew, by the way. And it was horse crap to just say to a freshman here go ahead and win the biggest game of the year for us against our rival and the offense was terrible and they got killed by wazoo in that game so the fact that they've gone from that atmosphere which was awful at that point in time to where they are right now i, I chip i gotta tell you i i think it's the biggest 180 that i've ever seen covering husky football you know, from yep. the offense to do what they did, from the quarterback position, what it looked like then to what it looks like now, to go from four wins to ten, unranked to top ten at one point this year, I don't remember a bigger turnaround in a quicker amount of time. If USC would have beaten Utah in the Pac-12 championship game, would Washington have gone to the yes. Rose Bowl? Yes, they would have gone to the Rose Bowl. And there is a little bit of a letdown, I think. I, I But I'm sensing it more from a fan's perspective, to be honest with you. Because you got to remember again, th these kids were four and eight, now they're ten and two. I don't really think it's a huge, huge deal for them which bowl game they play in. This season for them has been a massive success. So if you're counting on Texas fans, UW showing up and not caring about the Alamo Bowl because they thought they were going to be in the Rose Bowl, uh, not the case, right? If there's a team out there that you would look at and maybe think, hey, they don't want to be here, um, Tennessee in their bowl game. Oregon in their bowl game in the Holiday Bowl against Carolina. Oregon a few weeks ago thought they were playing for a Final Four. Now they're in San Diego. So I think teams like that, obviously, it's a little bit of a challenge to get them fired up. But, yeah, these, these, these guys went through a coaching change. They went through COVID. And when I say COVID, they were playing in a conference that really did not want to play football in 2020. They played four games in 2020, right? So – Look, SEC full steam ahead. Big 12, right, full steam ahead in 2020. Not the case on the West Coast where people were freaking out and nobody wanted to leave their house and they all wanted to live in a bubble. It's a different story here in Seattle and on the West Coast. So they went through that. They went through a coaching change. They went through Washington State rushing the field against them and Jaden Delora planting the Cougar flag on the 50-yard line after they lost their seven-game winning streak to Washington State. So all that crap they went through to go 10-2 and two and be here in the Alamo Bowl, uh, trust me, this this football team is is freaking fired up for this game. Is, is Washington in the Pac-12 in 2026? Ooh, 2026. 
Well, I saw where Kevin Warren said they're done expanding for now uh, in the Big Ten. So what does for now mean, right? Define for now. I think they want to get out. I think Washington wants out. I, I think Washington wants out. I think Jen Cohen, the AD, wants out. I think they want to be in a conference that's serious about football. They want to be surrounded by other programs and administrations that are serious about football. And they're not getting that with the Pac-12. They're, they're just not, right? Um, they need to fight for better TV deals, more exposure, things like that. You know, imagine being in the Big 12 or the SEC or the Big 10 where your games are played at, you know, 2, 5 o'clock in the afternoon on the East Coast instead of 10 o'clock at night. I mean, Washington had two games that started before 4 o'clock in Seattle, which is 7 o'clock on the East Coast. So nobody saw these guys play. And that's been a problem for a long time. Christian McCaffrey lost the Heisman Trophy because all of his games were at night. And he broke Barry Sanders' all-purpose yardage record in the history of college football and did not win the Heisman Trophy because nobody saw Christian McCaffrey play football at Stanford. So the lack of exposure, the lack of passion, Chip, on the West Coast, I mean, you go up and down and these stadiums are empty, right? I mean, most of them are competing with professional teams, okay, to be fair, right? But... I think they would rather be in a conference where they can, A, make more money, B, get more exposure, and C, be surrounded by people that are a lot more serious about football than they are here on the West Coast. Larry Scott was a disaster oh. as far as the uh, TV deal for the for the Pac-12. How's George Klyavkov being yeah. viewed? You know what's funny, Chip? I've always thought there's only so much a commissioner can do. Um because it's up to the presidents when it's all said and done, right? I mean, the 12 conference presidents are the ones that will set policy for the conference. They're the ones that will push you in a certain direction. And when the conference presidents are more concerned about getting equal run on the network for equal sports, instead of shoving football down people's throats, which they should be doing, because that's the moneymaker, then what are you gonna do? What are you supposed to do if you're Larry Scott? I mean, what you need is a guy or a gal who can be influential with the presidents, who can convince them, no, you're doing the wrong thing. We need to go this way. I think Klyovkov has that much more than Larry Scott does. The problem is now he's losing USC and UCLA, right? And so now he's got to decide, do we go with a 10-team conference? Do we go after a team like UNLV or San Diego State or Fresno or whatever, which I happen to think would be embarrassing to replace L.A., with Vegas or San Diego or Fresno, California, I think you just go with 10 and, and you see what you can do with 10. Uh, the expanded playoff now changes everything, obviously. The only way the Pac-10 or Pac-12 doesn't get a team in the college football playoff is if two group of five teams are ranked ahead of their champion. And if that's the case, then shame on them, right? If that's the case, then forget about it. It doesn't matter what conference you're in. But um, I think George potentially has the, the – um, street cred, if you will, to persuade the presidents to think differently and approach this thing differently. Uh, but in the end, it really is up to the presidents, and they've been the ones, I think, that are holding this conference back. I mean, they started, you know, media rights negotiations in July. Here we are in December. Yes. And there's still, no, there's still no TV deal. What do you think happens? Well, uh, he came out the other day and said that uh, they're not going to get done until January at the earliest because nobody negotiates in December. I don't know if that's true or not. I would have to go back and Google it and see if there's been any meteorites deals that have been announced in, you know, during the holidays. But I'll take his word for it for now. What I think is going to happen is I think the Pac-12 is going to have to get really creative here. 
meaning you're going to see a lot of games on Amazon. You're going to see a lot of games on streaming services across the country. Amazon, I think they're trying to avoid putting a lot of games on Amazon, maybe some, a small package like the NFL does with Thursday night. Um, but I think they're going to have to do more than that because I think Amazon is the one partner they can go to where they can give them their own platform, not sharing it with the Big Ten, not sharing it with the Big 12, right? Not sharing it with the SEC. They can put their games on whenever they damn well want because they've got a unlimited amount of channels they can throw at you, obviously. It's not like Fox with the one channel or ESPN with the two or three channels. So I think you'll see games on Amazon. Um, I think you'll see a lot of creativity. You'll see a lot of uh, foresight from the Pac-12, and we'll see how people respond to it. I mean, I don't mind watching a game or two on Amazon every now and then, but I don't want to watch every game on Amazon. It bugs me. I don't know about you, but I'm watching Thursday Night Football, and I can't go back and forth between channels because I got my Amazon app open, right? So I got to get out of there, go to a different input, and do this and do that. It's kind of of a pain in the ass, and maybe I'm just complaining and bitching and moaning, but whatever. I'm 50 years old, and this stuff's hard for me. Um, But I I just think that the Pac-12 may have no choice but to maybe put more games on streaming services than they want. And then they have to decide for basketball, like, do they want Gonzaga? Is a basketball-only school? Does Gonzaga even want to come here? Uh, Will they give Gonzaga a full share, even though they have no football team? So it's kind of a weird time for the Pac-10, Pac-12, and that nobody really knows, Chip, what this thing looks like even in the next year or so. How about, uh, real quick, Deion Sanders at Colorado? I love it. I think it's awesome. Can't wait for media day. Cannot wait for media day. Did you see that video from Jackson State where the guy called him Dion and he got pissed off and walked away? Did you see that? Yeah. I, I got to send you this video. It's awesome because somebody at media day is going to call Deion Sanders Dion. And maybe, you know, not trying to be a smart ass, but maybe they didn't see the video and they have no idea that he wants to be called Coach Sanders, which I think is ridiculous. I mean, do people down there refer to Sark as Steve every now and then in press conferences? I mean, maybe every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, to me, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I did it with Mike Holmgren. I called him Mike. I called Rick Neuheisel Rick. I called Lorenzo Romar Lorenzo. I've called Pete Carroll Pete. We're just having conversations here. We're just, you know, people talking, asking questions, whatever. So, I mean, he's not the king of England for not God's sakes. He's not the governor. He's not the president. And he wants to be called Coach Sanders. So I'm curious to see if anybody slips up and what his reaction is when they go down to L.A. But I think it's awesome. Um, I think one of two things are going to happen. Either A, he's going to win big and win big fast. Or B, he's going to get Colorado on the death penalty fast. Either one of those. What <laughs> are the others going to happen, man? Well, Safi, we'll we'll let you go on this. How do you see the Alamo Bowl playing out? Yeah, well, I I saw the total was, what, 68? Is that right? The over-under is 68. I'd play the over in that thing, dude. I really would. I think it's going to be a higher-scoring game. I could see UW winning a a 41-30 to type game, for example. I could see Texas maybe, you know, just finding a way to get right with their passing game against the secondary that's been kind of up and down. You know, I will say this, that – UW's defense for the course of the year has not been great. The numbers right now look okay. They're number three in the conference in defense, but they're also in the 50s nationally, right? So normally you're number three in the conference in defense, and maybe you're a top 20 team in the country, maybe top 30.
but they're in the 50s because their defense and nobody really plays much defense in this conference, kind of like in your conference now in the Big 12. So I don't think it's going to be a 2011 Keith Price versus RG3, Baylor versus UW 67-62 game like we saw when we were last down there. But I think it's going to be a high-scoring game, and I would carve out about four hours for this one, by the way, and play the over. I love it. Um, Dave Softy Mahler, K. JR legend. Um, really appreciate your time, man. And uh no looking forward to uh to this matchup. Um and thanks to everybody. How do you see it going? How do you see it going? Honestly, what's your gut tell you? Texas is gonna have to run the ball like they have against Kansas and Baylor. I mean, right. they're gonna they're gonna have to pound it. And Sark has sort of he gets credit because he came around to it, but it took a while right. against Baylor. It took it almost took well, it took a fumble by Ewers that was turned into a scoop and score that gave Baylor the lead right. uh, with 13.30 left for Sark to finally say, okay, we're just going to run. He ran it 22 straight times to end the game. And he should have done that against Oklahoma State. He would have won, um, especially with B. John Robinson and Roshan Johnson. So if they don't, if Texas yes. doesn't have Bijan right. and Roshan, do they do that with Jonathan Brooks, who's – a really talented guy averaging seven yards a carry who's, you know, got people feeling a little better about losing Bijan and Roshan, but I, Texas is going to have to run the football. And if Sark falls in love with trying to throw it, uh, Texas probably loses the game. Yeah. And that's been, that's been a problem for UW's defense has been stopping the run. I mean, Damian Martinez, Oregon state ran all over these guys. Uh, Charbonnet UCLA ran all over him. So uh, I, I would tell Sark to throw the ball 70 times. All right. Let, let Quinn Ewers sit back there and let's see what number eight and number three can do and tee off on the guy. So yeah, when te- I, I think you're right. When Texas has attempted 34 passes or more, they've lost every game, every game. And how many times have they done that? Three. Okay. All right. So, so I mean, one fourth of the year, basically I got you. Yeah. Yeah. So Sark's going to have to pound the rock. Um, we'll see. We'll see if he, uh, can get them into a rhythm doing that. So yeah, it's gonna be fun, man. Either way, it's gonna be fun. Can't wait. Yeah. Uh, really again, appreciate the time with, uh, with softy Mahler and thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of the flagship podcast until next time. We'll see you over at horns 247com Stay go. safe and keep the faith. On May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus.